Chapter 28 of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 28 On the next day, Consuela felt herself broken in mind and body. Sufferville's cynical revelations following so suddenly upon the paternal encouragements of the invisibles produced upon her the effect of an immersion in freezing water after a delightful warmth. She had been raised an instant towards heaven in order to fall again immediately to earth. She was almost vexed with the doctor for having undeceived her, for she had already, in her dreams, taken pleasure in clothing with the dazzling majesty, this august tribunal which opened its arms to her as an adopting family, as a refuge against the dangers of the world and the temptations of youth. Still the doctor appeared to deserve some gratitude, and Consuelo acknowledged it without being able to experience any towards him. Was not his conduct that of a sincere, courageous, and disinterested man? But Consuelo found him too skeptical, too much of a materialist, too much given to despise good intentions and to laugh at beautiful characters. Notwithstanding what he had said to her about the imprudent and dangerous character of the anonymous prince, she still formed to herself a high idea of that noble old man, ardent for good as a youth, and artless as a child in his faith in the perfectibility of the human race. The words which had been addressed to her in the subterranean hall returned to her mind and appeared to her full of calm authority and austere wisdom. Charity and goodness pierced through the threats and reserve of an affected severity, ready to give itself the lie at the least burst to Consuelo's heart. Would cheats, covetous men and charlatans have thus spoken and acted with her? The valiant enterprise of reforming the world, so ridiculous in the eyes of the cynic supper bill, echoed the eternal wish, the romantic hopes, the enthusiastic faith with which Albert had inspired his spouse, and which he had again found with benevolent sympathy in Gottlieb's afflicted but generous head. Was not this Supperville hateful for wishing to dissuade her from it, and to deprive her of her faith in God, at the same time with her confidence in the invisibles? Consuelo, much more given to poetry of soul than to the dry appreciation of the sad realities of the present life, struggled against the judgments of Supperville and endeavored to repel them. Had he not made gratuitous suppositions, he confessed that he was not initiated into the subterranean world, and who appeared ignorant even of the name and existence of the Council of the Invisibles. It was possible that Trismegatus was a chevalier d'industry, though the Princess Amelia affirmed the contrary in the friendship of Count Galaukin, the best and wisest of the nobles, whom Consuelo had met at Berlin, spoke in his favor. That Cagliostro and St. Germain were also impostors, that too might be supposed, 
though they likewise might have been deceived by an extraordinary resemblance. But when uniting these three adventurers in the same contempt, it did not follow that they made part of the Council of the Invisibles, nor that this association of virtuous men could not repel their suggestions as soon as Consuelo had herself ascertained that Trismegistus was not Albert. Would it not be time to withdraw her confidence after that decisive proof if they persisted in wishing to deceive her so grossly? Until then, Consuelo wished to try her destiny and to know better those invisibles to whom she owed her liberty and whose paternal reproaches had reached her heart. She determined upon this last course, and while awaiting the termination of the adventure, she resolved to treat all that Supperville had said as a trial he had been authorized to subject her to, or else as a necessity of expressing his bile against certain rivals better received and better treated than himself by the prince. A last hypothesis troubled Consuelo more than all the others. Was it absolutely impossible that Albert should be alive? Supperville had not observed the phenomena that had for two years preceded his last illness. He had even refused to believe in them, persisting in the thought that the frequent absences of the young Count of the Grotto had been consecrated to gallant rendezvous with Consuelo. She alone, with Zdenko, knew the secret of those lethargic crises. The doctor's self-love would not allow him to confess that he might have been deceived by the appearance of death. Now that Consuelo was acquainted with the existence and material power of the Council of the Invisibles, she dared to form many conjectures upon the manner in which they might have rescued Albert from the horrors of a premature burial, and received him secretly among themselves for unknown purposes. All that Supperville had revealed to her of the mysteries of the chateau and the peculiarities of the prince helped to confirm this supposition. The resemblance of an adventurer named Trismegatus might complicate the marvelousness of the fact, but it did not destroy its possibility. This idea took such strong possession of poor Consuelo that she fell into a deep melancholy. Albert Living she would not hesitate to join him as soon as she was permitted and to devote herself to him eternally. But more than ever, she felt that she must suffer from a devotedness into which love did not enter. The chevalier presented himself to her imagination as a cause of bread of regret and to her conscience as a source of future remorse. If she were obliged to renounce him, her dawning love would follow the course of opposed inclinations. It would become a passion. Consuelo did not ask herself with a hypocritical resignation why this dear Albert wished to leave his tomb where he was so well off. She said that it was in her destiny to sacrifice herself to this man, perhaps even beyond the grave, and she wished to accomplish that destiny even to the end but she suffered strangely, and she wept for the unknown, her most involuntary, her most ardent love. She was drawn from her meditations by a slight noise and the grazing of a little wing upon her shoulder. She uttered an exclamation of surprise and joy on seeing a pretty red breast fluttering in her chamber 
and approaching her without fear. After a few moments of reserve, he consented to take a fly from her hand. "'Is it you, my poor friend, my faithful companion?' said Consuela to him with tears of infantile joy. "'Can it be possible that you have sought and found me here?' "'No, that cannot be. "'Pretty, confiding creature, "'you resemble my friend and are not he. "'You belong to some gardener "'and have escaped from the greenhouse "'in which you have passed the cold weather "'among always beautiful flowers.' Come to me, consoler of the prisoner, since the instinct of your race impels you towards the solitary and the captive. I wish to transfer to you all the friendship I had for your brother. Consuela played seriously for a quarter of an hour with the amiable little animal. When she heard from without a slight whistle, which seemed to thrill that intelligent creature, he let fall the dainties which his new friend had lavished upon him hesitated a little, made his great black eyes sparkle, and suddenly determined to take his flight through the window, attracted by a fresh call from an irresistible authority. Consuela followed him with her eyes and saw him lose himself in the foliage. But on striving to discover him again, she perceived at the bottom of her garden on the other bank of the stream which bounded it, in a rather open place, a personage easily recognized, notwithstanding the distance. It was Gottlieb, who dragged himself alongside the water in a very cheerful manner, singing and trying to hop. Consuelo, forgetting a little the prohibition of the invisibles, endeavored to attract his attention by waving her handkerchief from the window, but he was absorbed by the desire of recalling his red breast. He raised his head towards the trees as he whistled, and went away without having noticed Consuelo. God be blessed, and the invisibles also, in spite of Supperville, said she to herself. That poor child appears happy and better in health. His guardian angel, the Redbreast, is with him. It seems that it is also the presage of a more pleasing destiny for myself. Let me no longer doubt my protectors. Distrust palsies the heart." She sought for the means of occupying her time in a profitable manner to prepare her for the new moral education which had been announced to her, and she thought of reading for the first time since she had been at blank. She entered the library, upon which she had hitherto cast only an absent glance, and resolved to examine seriously the choice of books that had been placed at her disposal. They were not numerous, but extremely rare and probably unique for the greater part. It was a collection of the writings of the most remarkable philosophers of all epochs and all nations, but abridged and reduced to the essence of their doctrines and translated into the various languages which Consuelo could understand. Many, having never been published as translations, were in manuscript, especially those of the celebrated heretics and innovators of the Middle Ages, precious remains of the past, important fragments of which, and even some complete copies, had escaped the researches of the Inquisition, and the later violations exercised by the Jesuits in the old heretical chateaus of Germany during the Thirty Years' War. 
Consuela could not appreciate the value of these philosophical treasures, collected by some ardent bibliophile or by some courageous adept. The originals would have interested her on account of their characters and the vignettes, but she had under her eyes only a translation, made with care and penned with elegance by some modern. Still, she sought with preference for the faithful translations of Wycliffe, of John Huss, and other reforming Christian philosophers who were connected in anterior, contemporaneous, and subsequent ages with those fathers of the new religious era. She had not read them, but she was quite well acquainted with them from her long conversations with Albert. In turning them over, she did not read them anymore, and yet she knew them better and better. Consuelo had an essentially religious soul without having a philosophical mind. If she had not lived in that reasoning and clear-sighted medium of the world of her time, she would have been easily turned to superstition and fanaticism. Still, such as she was, she understood the exalted discourses of Gottlieb better than the writings of Voltaire, which were nevertheless read with ardor by all the fine ladies of that age. That intelligent and simple girl, so courageous and so tender, had not a head formed for the subtleties of reasoning. She was always enlightened by her heart before being so by her brain. Seizing all revelations of feeling by a prompt assimilation, she could have been instructed philosophically, and she had been remarkably so for her age, her sex, and her position by the teachings of a friendly voice, by the eloquent and fervent voice of Albert. The organizations of artists acquire more in the emotions of a lecture or of a sermon than in the patient and often cold study of books. Such was Consuelo. She could not read a whole page with attention, but if a great thought, happily rendered and summed up by a brilliant expression, struck her attention, her soul became fixed upon it. She repeated it to herself like a musical phrase. The sense, however profound it might be, penetrated her like a divine ray. She lived upon that idea, applied it to all her emotions. She derived a real strength from it. She remembered it all her life. And it was not for her a vain sentence. It was a rule of conduct, an armor for the fight. What need has she to analyze and sum up the book in which she had seized it? All that book was written in her heart as soon as the inspiration which produced it had taken possession of her. Her destiny did not command her to go beyond. She did not pretend to conceive a philosophical world learnedly in her mind. She felt the warmth of the secret revelations which are granted to poetic souls when they are also loving. It was thus that she read several days without reading anything. She could give no account of anything. But more than one page in which she had seen only a single line was wet with her tears, and often she ran to the harpsichord to improvise songs, the grandeur and tenderness which were the burning and spontaneous expressions of her generous emotion. She passed a whole week in a solitude, which was no longer troubled by Matthias's reports. She had promised herself not to ask him the least question, 
and perhaps he had been reprimanded for his indiscretion, for he had become as taciturn as he was tedious in the first days. The Redbreast came to see Consuelo every morning, but without being accompanied at a distance by Gottlieb. It seemed that this little being, Consuelo was not far from believing him enchanted, had regular hours to come and divert her by his presence, and to return punctually at noon to his other friend. In fact, there was nothing wonderful in that. Animals at liberty have habits, and make a regulated employment of their days with more intelligence and foresight even than domesticated animals. One day, however, Consuelo remarked that he did not fly as gracefully as usual. Instead of coming to peck at her fingers, he only thought of freeing himself by claws and beak from some irritating clog. Consuelo approached him and saw a black thread hanging from his wing. Had the poor little fellow been taken in a snare and escaped only by strength in a dress, carrying away a piece of his chain? She had no difficulty in capturing him, but she had a little in freeing him from a thread of silk skillfully crossed over his back and which fixed under his left wing a very small bag of quite thin brown cloth. In that bag she found a billet, written in almost imperceptible characters, upon a paper so fine that she feared to tear it with a breath. At the first words, she saw well that it was a message from her dear unknown. It contained these few lines. A generous work was confided to me in hopes that the pleasure of doing good would calm the anxieties of my passion. But nothing not even the exercises of charity, can distract a soul in which you reign. I have accomplished my task sooner than was thought possible. I have returned, and I love you more than ever. Still the sky has become more clear. I do not know what has passed between you and them, but they seem to be more favorable, and my love is no longer treated as a crime, but only as a misfortune for me. A misfortune? Oh, they do not love. They do not know that I cannot be unhappy if you love me. And you do love me, do you not? Entrusted to the red breast of Spandau. It is he. I have brought him in my bosom. Oh, let him pay me for my care by bringing me a line from you. Gottlieb will give it to me faithfully without looking at it. Mystery. Romantic circumstances fan the flame of love. Consuelo experienced the most violent temptation to reply, and the fear of displeasing the invisibles, the scruple of breaking her promise, restrained her only feebly. It must be confessed. But, on thinking that she might be discovered, an occasion of fresh exile to the Chevalier, she had the courage to abstain. She restored the red breast to liberty, without confiding to him a single word of answer, but not without shedding bitter tears at the sorrow and disappointment which this severity would occasion to her lover. She tried to resume her studies, but neither reading nor singing could distract her from the agitation with which her bosom was stirred since she knew that the chevalier was near her. She could not help hoping that he would disobey for both, and that she would see him gliding in the evening among the flowery thickets of her garden. 
but she did not wish to encourage him by showing herself. She passed the evening shut up, watching through her blinds, palpitating, full of fear and desire, and yet resolved not to answer his appeal. She did not see him appear, and she experienced as much sorrow and surprise as if she had depended upon a rashness which she would still have blamed, and which would have reawakened all her terrors. All the little mysterious dramas of young and burning loves were accomplished in her bosom in a few hours. This was a new phase. These were new emotions in her life. She had often expected Anzaletto in the evening upon the quays of Venice or upon the terraces of the Court Minelli, but she had expected him while going over her morning's lesson or saying her rosary without impatience, without fear, without palpitations, and without anguish. That childish love was so akin to friendship that it in nothing resembled this which she now felt for Liverani. The next day she expected the red breast with impatience. The red breast did not come. Had even seized on his passage by some savage Argus, had the disquiet occasioned by that band of silk, and that burden heavy for him prevented his coming out? But he had so much sense that he would have remembered that Consuelo had freed him from it the day before, and he would have come to ask her to do that service for him again. Consuelo wept the whole day. She who had not found tears in great catastrophes, who had not shed a single one over her misfortunes at Spandau, felt herself broken and consumed by the sufferings of her love, and sought in vain for the strength which had sustained her against all the other evils of her life. In the evening she was trying to read a score at the harpsichord, when two black figures presented themselves at the entrance of the music saloon without her having heard them ascend. She could not restrain a cry of terror at the apparition of those specters, but one of them said to her, in a voice more gentle than the first time, Follow us. She rose in silence to obey them. A silk bandage was presented to her with the words, This will inconvenience you less than the hood. Cover your eyes yourself and swear that you will do so conscientiously. Swear also that if the bandage falls or becomes disarranged, you will close your eyes until we tell you to open them. I swear it to you, replied Consuelo. Your oath is accepted as valid, returned the conductor, and Consuelo walked through the subterranean passages as before, but when she was told to stop, an unknown voice added, Take off the bandage yourself. Henceforth no one will again raise a hand to you. You will have no other keeper but your word. Consuelo found herself in a vaulted cabinet, lighted by one small sepulchral lamp suspended from the hanging keystone in the middle. A single judge, in red robe and livid mask, was seated upon an antique armchair near the table. He was bent with age. Some silvery locks escaped from beneath his skullcap. His voice was broken and trembling. The aspect of this old man changed into respectful deference the fear from which Consuelo could not defend herself at the approach of an invisible. Listen to me attentively, said he to her, making a sign that she should be seated upon a stool at some distance from him. 
You appear here before your confessor. I am the oldest of the council, and the calmness of my life has rendered me as chaste as the most chaste of the Catholic priests. I do not lie. Still, do you wish to refuse me? You are free to do so. I accept you, replied Consuelo, provided always that my confession does not imply that of another. Vain scruple, returned the old man. A scholar does not reveal to his master the fault of his comrade, but a son hastens to inform his father of that of a brother, because he knows that a father represses and corrects without punishing. At least, such should be the law of the family. You are here in the bosom of a family which strives to practice the ideal. Have you confidence? This question, so arbitrary in the mouth of an unknown, was made with so much gentleness and so sympathizing a tone of voice that Consuelo, suddenly attracted and softened, replied without hesitation, I have full confidence. Listen again, resumed the old man. You said, the first time you appeared before us, a word which we have received and weighed. It is a strange moral torture for a woman to confess herself aloud before eight men. Your modesty has been taken into consideration. You will confess only to me, and I will not betray your secrets. Full power has been given me, though I am not superior to any other in the council, to advise you in a particular affair of a delicate nature and which has only an indirect reference to your initiation. Will you reply to me without concealment? Will you lay bare your heart before me? I will do so. I shall ask you nothing of your past life. As you were told, your past does not belong to us, but you have been warned to purify your soul from the instant that marked the commencement of your adoption. You were to have made your reflections upon the difficulties and the consequences of that adoption. It is not to me alone that you are to render an account on that head. The question between you and me is on another matter. Reply then. I am ready. One of our children has conceived love for you. During the past eight days, do you respond to that love or do you repel it? I have repelled it in all my actions. I know that. Your smallest actions are known to us. I ask the secret of your heart and not of your actions. Consuelo felt her cheeks burn, and she remained silent. You find my question a very cruel one. Still, it must be answered. I do not wish to guess anything. I must know and register. Well, I love, replied Consuelo, carried away by the necessity of being true. But hardly had she pronounced that word with boldness than she burst into tears. She had renounced the virginity of her soul. Why do you weep, returned the confessor with gentleness? Is it from shame or repentance? I do not know. It seems to me that it is not from repentance. I love too much for that. Whom do you love? You know. I do not know. But if I did not know, his name. Liverani. That is the name of no one. It is common to all those of our adepts who wish to bear and to make use of it. 
It is a nom de guerre, like all those which most of us use in our journeys. I know him by no other, and it was not from him that I learnt it. His age? I have not asked him. His face? I have not seen it. How would you recognize him? It seems to me that on touching his hand I should recognize him. And if your fate depended on that trial and you should be deceived? That would be horrible. Shudder then at your imprudence, unhappy child. Your love is senseless. I know it well. And you do not combat it in your heart? I have not the power. Have you the desire? Not even the desire. Then your heart is free from every other affection? Entirely. But you are a widow. I believe I am. And if you were not, I would combat my love and would do my duty. With regret, with sorrow, with despair perhaps, but I would do it. Then you did not love him who was your husband. I loved him with fraternal friendship. I did my best to love him with love. And you were not able? Now that I know what it is to love, I can say no. Then feel no remorse. Love cannot be forced. You think that you love this Liverani seriously, religiously, ardently? I feel all that in my heart, unless he is unworthy of it. He is worthy. Oh, my father, cried Consuelo, transported with gratitude and ready to kneel before the old man. He is worthy of an immense love, as much as Albert himself. But you must renounce him. Then it is I who am not worthy, replied Consuelo sadly. You would be worthy of him, but you are not free. Albert de Rudelstadt is living. My God, forgive me, murmured Consuelo, falling on her knees and hiding her face in her hands. The confessor and the penitent kept a sorrowful silence, but soon Consuelo, recalling Sufferville's accusations, was penetrated with horror. Would that old man, whose presence filled her with veneration, lend himself to an infernal machination? Would he speculate upon the virtue and the sensibility of the unfortunate Consuelo in order to throw her into the arms of a miserable impostor? She raised her head, and, pale with horror, her eyes dry, her mouth trembling, tried to pierce with her glance that impassable mask which perhaps concealed from her the paleness of a guilty man or the diabolical laugh of a villain. Albert is living, said she. Are you very sure of it, sir? Do you know that there is a man who resembles him and that I myself thought I saw Albert on seeing him? I know all that absurd romance, replied the old man in a calm voice. I know all the follies that Supperville has imagined to clear himself of the crime of misconduct as a physician, which he committed in sending to the grave a man who was asleep. Two words are enough to bring down all that scaffolding of stupidities. The first is that Sufferville has been considered unworthy to pass the lower grades of the secret societies of which we had the supreme direction, and his wounded vanity, 
joined to a diseased and indiscreet curiosity, has not been able to bear this insult. The second is that Count Albert has never thought of claiming his inheritance, which he has voluntarily renounced, and that he will never consent to resume his name and his rank in the world. He could not do so now without exciting scandalous discussions respecting his identity, which his pride would not endure. He has perhaps badly understood his true duty in renouncing, so to speak, himself. He might have made a better use of his fortune than will his heirs. He has cut himself off from one of the means of practicing charity which Providence had placed in his hands. But there remain to him many others. And besides, the voice of his love has been stronger in this than that of his conscience. He remembered that you did not love him precisely because he was rich and noble. He wished to abjure his fortune and name without possible return. He has done so, and we have permitted it. Now you do not love him, and you love another. He will never claim from you the title of husband, which he owed on his deathbed only to your compassion. He will have courage enough to renounce you. We have no other power over him, whom you call Liberani, and over yourself than that of persuasion. If you wish to fly together, we cannot hinder it. We have neither dungeons nor restraints nor corporeal punishments at our service. Whatever a credulous and timid servant may have said to you on that point, we hate the means of tyranny. Your fate is in your own hands. Go and make your reflections once again, poor Consuelo, and may God inspire you. Consuelo had listened to this discourse in a deep stupor. When the old man had ended, she rose and said with energy, I have no need of reflection. My choice is made. Is Albert here? Lead me to his feet. Albert is not here. He could not be a witness of this struggle. He is even ignorant of the crisis to which you are subjected at this hour. Oh, my dear Albert, cried Consuela, raising her arms towards heaven. I will come out of it victorious. Then kneeling before the old man, My father, said she, Absolve me and help me never again to see that Liverani. I wish not to love him. I will love him no longer. The old man extended his trembling hands over Consuelo's head, but when he withdrew them she could not rise. She had stifled her sobs in her bosom, and, broken by a conflict beyond her strength, she was compelled to rest upon the confessor's arm in order to leave the oratory. End of chapter 28